Hello and welcome to the EdSurge On Air podcast, a weekly look at the future of education. I'm Jeff Young. The first two years of college are often treated like something of a commodity. Even the term general education, as the curriculum at that point is often called, feels, well, generic. Jennifer Schubert wants to rethink those first two years. She's come up with a new model of a two-year college that puts less emphasis on academic disciplines and more on the kind of skills students need, whether they continue their studies or, or go straight into the job market. She calls it Alder College, though so far it's just an idea, as she's still in the planning phases. Schubert speaks the language of both higher education and business. She's been a professor at a traditional college, as well as a consultant and a business strategist. These days, she's getting schooled in in just how hard it is to start a college from scratch. We'll hear more about her idea and how the struggle to get it off the ground is going right after this. This episode of the EdSurge On Air podcast is brought to you by the EdSurge Next newsletter. Get the latest news and views about higher education technology each week. Sign up for the EdSurge Next newsletter. Just visit edsurge.com and click on subscribe. I'm here with Jennifer Schubert, founder and executive director of Alder College, and we're sitting in Portland um, chatting in person, which I'm excited to, to be here. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. Why? Okay, so I wanted to start with um, the story of Alder College and, ta- and the, this idea, this model, and, and, and sort of the, the challenge there. Um, so why did you try, why, why did you decide to start you know, a college from scratch rather than you know, work within higher ed? Like, what is it that you felt was, you know, was, was the problem that, that really needed a whole new fresh start? Many of the faculty and other people we're working with on this, um, we've tried to change things at some of the institutions we've been at, and it's been challenging, and not because people don't want to see change, but higher ed is just a very complex and mostly hierarchical structure that makes it really hard to do this. If you had to, and I'm sure you've had to do this, what's the elevator pitch for the model? Sure, sure. So Alder College in a nutshell is that it would be a two-year liberal arts commuter college and students would graduate with an AA and the recruitment would be local and so we'd be working with educators and mentors that really know the students and know our program to make a good fit. When students enter, they'd enter with a cohort and they would stay with that cohort of about 30 students for their uh, entire time. And then this is where it's quite different, which is the students are going full-time and they're not taking kind of random general education courses. What they're taking is a block of courses. And so they're always taking four courses and the faculty have designed the assignments and the courses around themes. And so you're taking humanities, social science, STEM, and communications, but all of those classes are maybe working on the census for six weeks or immigration for eight weeks. And this is um, what we're calling an integrated curriculum. There's different names for this, but we think it's important for for three reasons. And this is where, when we talk about this issue of inequality, we think that this is a a really key part, which is one, students just learn better when they're making connections. We just know that. The second is a lot of students are entering college with skills gaps. And the way that we've structured college, faculty, one, don't have the training, but two, don't have the time to assess where those gaps are then actually address them. And so the entire two-year program is really designed to address those skills gaps so students are not leaving with big holes, whether it's communication or quantitative reasoning gaps. And then the third is 
the, whenever possible, students really need to be connecting their learning with the world. And so whenever possible, students will be going out into the world and interviewing and talking to people. We'll be bringing people into the classroom. And this is important for a couple of reasons. One is that um, the students really need to see that, oh, these themes and also these modes of thinking, whether it's historical or psychological or economic or statistical, these are things people use in their jobs. And how do they use them? And talk to people that actually use them in their jobs. The second is the students would be then networking with people in the city that they are likely to stay and work in. I think that's really important. And the third is that the number of students that actually know what people do in their jobs all day is <laughs> very low. Most students don't have a clear picture. They sort of have a general idea of, oh, I want to do this. And then they start on a path without ever speaking with someone who's actually in that career field. And so the hope is that they really this is a time where they can meet people and be talking with people. And so when they start to think about the path they want to take, it's from a much more informed position. And so when students graduate, they would graduate with a, a two-year um, AA, so they leave with a degree. We assume some would go on to a four-year, many. Uh, some may go, this podcast is proof, like higher ed is changing quickly. There may be certificates. Some may go into work. But the goal of these two years we're talking about is to produce students who think of themselves as learners. They can go out, whether they're going to a job, whether they go into a certificate program, into their major at a four-year, they know how to step into a situation and figure out how to learn. You know, one of the things that I'm hearing in, in that pitch is a real shift away from majors, subject majors, right? Because that seems to be the core of both two-year and four-year traditional higher ed, right, is that you, you take a little chemistry, you take a little Shakespeare or English, and you take a, and you're, um, and, and you're kind of moving away from that, if I hear you right. Yes, I think that's, that's fair, uh, and there's been a long debate, I mean, when I was in graduate school in the early 2000s, we kept having these, what are the disciplines, do we need them anymore, and that, and those were somewhat academic questions. Um, but I actually see now that those have real repercussions for the way that a student moves through a system. And what's happening is that a lot of students are, they're switching majors or things like that. So there's, there's an argument to be made for a more general degree just from a moving students through. And that's fine. But the other piece, and this is where I think there are, um, there's disagreement amongst academics about this, is that um, knowledge and the way that we have access to it has changed dramatically even in the past 10 years and it's not that we don't need um, people who are studying anthropology and uh, physics right these, these more specific uh, fields but in terms of when we step back and we think what do what does an educated person need at the level of coming out being an 18, 19, 20-year-old. So our, our model is explicitly designed for 18 to 25, or I'd say 16 to 25. Um, so we're not, um, uh, there's a lot of research that kind of separates that from older students returning. So just want to clarify that. Um, and so this move away, we think that really as people are um, going out into the workforce, that ability to learn and access, and I'll just give an example, the MOOCs, um, I believe you, Ed Surge had a, a piece on MOOCs recently, which a lot yeah, of the research... these are the massive, these free online courses that were all the rage five years ago, six years ago. Yeah. yeah, and many of the people that the research points to it, and my friends who are successful in them, they already have 
bachelor's or master's degrees or PhDs for that matter. Mm -hmm. um, they're because, and they find them, they're great, except you have to know how to learn in very specific ways mm -hmm. to access those. And so what we, I think that there's a group of educators that really feel that college, especially at those first two years, it's about creating people that become learners, that have that access. Because then you can become, if you want to be an English major or a physics major, right, all of these different majors or specific fields, you're going to learn that most people in careers will tell you, yeah, and then you have to go back and learn other things. And mm -hmm. you're not done. You know, and I've met lots of engineers who say, oh, my engineering degree was great, but actually what I needed was a psychology degree because I have to manage a team. And what I then needed was a policy team because we had to get some. And so this idea that people are so narrowly defined, I think, is really breaks down um, in the, the, the workforce. But also the opportunities to learn are just tremendous out there. It's interesting that you're not an online college, you're very in-person in your model, but you're almost teaching people how to go off and take online courses if they want to in the future, among other things. Yes, and I think that should actually be part of learning. So I wanted to just go a little bit on the, you know, what, what's going on with Alder. So could you walk me through a chronology of events? You know, how does one even start? You know, I think some listeners might wonder, how do you start a new nonprofit college? Oh yeah, that's that's a great question. Um, so there's two challenges that you have to come confront, which is one, what are you gonna do about accreditation? And then the other is the financing of it. So I can start with accreditation. Uh, we, some people have started colleges and they are not accredited. We felt like we were not going to get down that path for two reasons. Accreditation is connected to the ability to transfer credits to another school. Mm. Most 17 to 18 year olds, um, it's not fair for them not to understand that. You can say you can tell them that. We did not feel like that would be um, fair to do. The second is it's connected to um, accreditation is connected to federal financial aid, Pell Grants, other aid. And our model is built on um, serving um, uh, underserved students. And so that was uh, that is a part of our, our budget model. And so there's three ways to, if, if you're going to start a college, this is good, this is a manual. If you want to start a college, <laughs> Great. Um, there's sort of three ways to become accredited. The first is that you open, you're unaccredited for the first few years, and then you get accreditation after, you have to go through a whole process uh, after you have graduated first class. Um, the people that can do this, Olin School of Engineering, which opened about 10 years ago, they did this. They also had, I believe, $500 million. And so they were able to, one, no one worried that they weren't going to get accreditation. The professors were from MIT and other places. Um, they had a building. They had this money. The students didn't pay. <laughs> All the students went for free for the first couple of years. And so um, they had a runway. They had a runway, if you will, yes. There was no, no doubt there. That's really a challenge for almost anybody that does not have that kind of um, backing. The second way is um, what within the California system, the um, accreditation, I wanna, don't want to get too into the weeds here, is an incubation, which is, um, it's called different things in different um, accreditation is regional, so there's different uh, accrediting bodies. But the idea of it is you become kind of under the umbrella of another institution for a couple years, and then you quote incubate out. Um, Minerva, uh, many people know, is an example of, of I believe that's what they're, they're still doing with um, uh, Keck. And then the third is that you could actually, you know, kind of, if you will, um, convince another school that this should become part of 
a program at their school. So you'd become, say there's a nursing school, a business school, you'd become the Alder School, and it's kind of its, its own school at another institution. And then you're, in that case, you're kind of piggybacking on their accreditation. You'd actually um, be absorbed into them, yeah. Right, yeah. Okay. And so we, uh, so the chronology of this and why I lay that out is the first option, <laughs> no one gave us $500 million. So we didn't do that one. I know, I know. Um, <laughs> too bad. But the second, uh, we, we went through actually both of the other two processes, which is um, we had found a school. Um, we couldn't find a partner in our immediate area or state um, for various reasons. And so we had uh, worked with a school in California. And we were going to do the incubation model. That fell through for various internal reasons. Um, and then the second one, which we got much further with, was the um, becoming a program. And we were going to become essentially a branch campus of a school that was not in the state. And so we would have been a branch campus of the institution. We would have offered the AA. And they were interested in part because they were interested in our model, but also that they could potentially then add other programs because they wanted to be in, in the Portland area. Um, that was a great fit. Both of these institutions, wonderful people, like love them, just intellectually all on the same page, cared about the students. Um, the second one was really cutting down to finances. And so we needed to raise a couple million dollars. We have a s sustainable financial model once we're up and running, which means we have a few years where you're growing and adding students and you have faculty you know, development and things like that, it's just startup costs. Um, we needed a couple million dollars. We showed that we could raise um, a, a couple million dollars, but not the whole amount. And the other school just doesn't have the, the cushion to take a risk. Um, and that's a real challenge um, just generally in higher ed. Higher ed funding, um, one is often dependent upon alumni. And so you're already at a disadvantage because you don't have any. Um, and then the second is that um, philanthropy tends to go towards um, buildings or specific program. It tends to go towards the, the top and towards research. No one, ever, no one ever gives $100 million for writing 101. And what we're essentially saying is where you really need to put your resources are in the first and second year. And that's just not that interesting to, to many philanthropists as a... Those with the checkbook, like for $100 million. Yeah, yeah, with ten million even. <laughs> when we were talking in like the you know two to three million to start this, so very different than the and that I would have to say that's bootstrapping it. I mean that's it's it sounds like a lot of money, um, but um, I've worked uh, like I said I was in finance and I was on a lot of different saw a lot of budgets, a lot of institutions, and so um, before we started any of this, I was building a financial model for three or four years and really talking to people about like what would this actually cost and uh, that's a piece that I would say you know if your educational ideas you can have as many educational ideas as you want and that's great but really when you're at the executive level talking to a president or a provost you need to be able to speak to how this is going to impact them financially and how it will benefit them as well. So yeah, this brings us to just last week or this month where you had some, some news I saw an announcement about. But in terms of the uh, full college um, project, we are at a standstill because that partner that we were working with on the branch campus, um, and this was late August, um, you know, we left amicably, but we don't feel like we can go forward with the financial 
picture. So. Yeah, so what what now? I mean, where does that leave you? I see your your website kind of has this interesting moment where you're it's it's all laid out, your vision, and you've clearly got, you know, you've done your homework, but you're sort of, it sort of says we're not currently doing the standalone college, but yep. it doesn't say you're you're totally giving up. Where, where are you? Yeah. This? So I think, and, and this gets more into where you can only ask so much of people in terms of we have an incredible board, we have incredible advisory council, we've talked to hundreds of people. I think that's the thing that keeps all of us going, which is everyone knows that there's a problem. Mm-hmm. Like there is, like we talk to people, and I'm talking about you know, whether it's students or it's employers or it's people that are about to send their kids off to college or kids that just got out of college. When people, when, when we talk about what we're doing, they're like, oh God, yeah, that makes, that makes a lot of sense. Um, so that said, we can only keep that up in terms of just energy and just people's time and asking them for their time and essentially free labor, right? Of these people yeah. designing it and building it yeah. and trying to work on it. Yeah. And so what we've decided to do in part is um, and this is the the other piece of it, a lot of this is behind the scenes trying to get a meeting with for a college to partner with us, it has to be at the executive level. Mm-hmm. And one of the challenges has been that the tenure I, I don't haven't I think it's five, it's like five to six years now of a president, which actually is a really challenging, someone is always leaving or someone's always coming in. You can't talk to them on the last 18 months of when they're leaving in the first 18 months they're trying to figure out. You have a very narrow window and just within our own area, I mean, I think I calculated within the three years that we've done this, I think 60 to 70% of the executive level has changed at least once if not more and that's from everything from community colleges to private liberal arts to large um, public institutions and so um, where we are now is going back and having conversations with institutions that um, the leadership at the time we talked to them three years ago there weren't a place to have a conversation and now they may be but this all takes um, just time higher ed moves at a really and this has been one of the challenges is that the pace for an institution to make a decision like this. When we were working with one and they were great and they were fast, it was at least nine months before you could really begin to have the substantial conversation um, because they have to clear it with different people. Um, and they this is an add-on. <laughs> this is not part of their main job. Um, this is something they'd have to think about and say, you know, you have to get them just interested even um, before actually doing the work of what would that look like. So the um, short answer is that we are continuing to try to figure out how we can make this happen. Um, but a lot of that is um, quieter conversations than when we were out there with a potential partner. One of the things that I was also curious about is, you know, I, we've been writing about some other startup colleges starting from scratch and it seems like several not all but a few of them are this small college like an idea and your model was to be small to not be some sort of scale up and do you know because you were in person and 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 trying to really be hands-on with students um it i almost think of it like the like the tiny house movement you know where people try to have a small square footage to be sustainable it almost feels like there's this tiny college idea um, is that, do you, do you kind of buy that and what, because I, I know some other examples, like you mentioned one in Chicago, I mm-hmm. think. Um, and why, if so, why? Like why? 
Yeah, so I, my guess is that most of the people, and I know a couple personally, some of the people studying some of the schools, I mean, it's just easier to start something small, right? There, there is just that that piece of it. <laughs> sure. Um, I think for us, the so ours was a dual question, which is um, at what number do we hit uh, financial su sustainability? Um, and ours was around 120. Um, 120 and, students. 120 students, but there was no reason that it had to be 120 students. And but we wanted to talk about that from just a financial point of view. We knew we needed to hit at least that. Got it. Um, but the way we designed ours, and I think this is, I've talked to different people um, who want. Some people um, want to spread what they're doing. Um, Arupe College, for instance, in Chicago. Um, is talking to other people about um, that. Uh, other schools, I don't know. I think that they kind of want to be an outpost of, of something different, and, and that's great too. For us, the issue of scalability, um, people talk about this all the time. I'm, I'm very suspicious of just saying, oh, it's going to be 120, but like we want it to be 10,000. What we wanted to say is that you could do this at 120 and still be you know, make it work financially, right? That which is slightly different than it has to go to ten thousand because we have a bunch of investors. If we don't go to ten thousand, then it's not going to work, right? So right, I just want to software company model. Yeah, yeah. and and I, in some of the education for profit, sure. Um, but in terms of for us, I think that education, and no one wants to seem to admit this, which is education just takes time and human beings often in a room together. Or if they're online, they're communicating in a way that takes time and that just takes people and labor. And I'm not sure why we have even, I would get rid of all of the lecture halls that are beyond 40 people. I think you can have like a, still a decent conversation with about 40 people, but beyond that we have technology. There's no reason for people to gather in a big room where people can't have a discussion and ask questions anymore. Um, and so if your model, this is getting, I am going to get to your question, um, if your model is based on relationships, on smaller classes, then it can scale, but it doesn't mean the classes are going to be bigger. It means that you'll have more classes of 20 students with the professor. Um, and the way we designed ours was modular, which is the 120 is about eight professors, the way that the, the curriculum works. And one of the things that I was interested in is this issue of the cost of education. And there's an argument to be made for our model is actually, um, so a lot of first and second year classes are taught by adjuncts at a lot of institutions. And that, I've been an adjunct, I just will say this, I've been an adjunct, many of my friends are adjuncts. There's nothing wrong with the actual teaching by an adjunct. The problem is both the labor conditions, they're not paid enough, and also they're not connected to the curriculum. There's not, I was literally handed a syllabus the week before I taught and no one in five years ever saw me teach a class, right? That's the reality of what's going on in a lot of first and second year courses. And so that issue of um, that first and second year, right now the way to make it cost effective is to not pay the faculty very much. And our argument is that's leading to a lot of students dropping out. It's leading students not being prepared to go on, right? When we lose students, we lose them in their first year. 30% mm -hmm. leave in their first year. Um, we think that you can invest in the faculty 
We also think, though, that the fixed curriculum we're talking about and the way in which we've designed it, um, because the students aren't kind of picking classes here and there, there's also some efficiency and gains to be made when the students in our model, the students are going to class between 9 and 3. It looks a little bit more like high school. They're actually doing this at a lot of other places, too. Um, it helps the students with their schedule. It also helps with dealing with the faculty and, you know, you don't have classes with four people in it and a class with 60 people in it. It's a simplified menu. It's a much more simplified menu, yes. Um, but it also has consequences for the, the labor issues. Um, you always know that you're teaching about 25 to 30 students mm -hmm. in each of your classes, right? Um, so this idea of scale, um, uh, I think it's not just an issue of um, how many students can you, can you push through so much as thinking about um, what will get you the best outcomes. And for us, it's students who graduate thinking of themselves as learners. And then how do you do that in a cost-effective manner? And that's just something I come from finance. Like That is something that I think about. And I would love to see also as part of our model is the educational piece that we're talking about, but then also this sort of a financial model that's sustainable. That said, it's not going to be cheap. I mean, I think that that's something that at some point we just all have to say, like, do we value? Can I quote Joe Biden? Is that OK? So sure. I don't do this usually, but he has this incredible quote. <laughs> Maybe he took it from someone, which is, you know, don't tell me your values. Show me your budget, and I'll tell you what your values are, paraphrasing. And I mean, I really think that's true. And if you look at where educational budgets are, one, they're just not big enough, just in general. But the second is in college, they tend up and away from the first and second year. They tend towards the majors, they tend towards, so people be like, it's great by your third and fourth year, you know, you have 15 people in your class. I'm going, yeah, but all the educational research points to the fact that most students aren't gonna get to that level. We need, mm -hmm. in that for those first two years is where we need to be spending our money as well. It's an interesting one and I, I hope to check in again and see how things go. But thank you so much for taking the time today to share your story. Appreciate it. Thank you. This has been the Ed Surge On Air podcast. Each week we feature conversations like this one, so please subscribe to keep up and you can support the show by taking a minute to leave a rating or a review. This episode was edited and produced by me, Jeff Young. We'll be back next week with more on the future of education. Thanks for listening.